All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 65, the Eric Carlson episode of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. I'm once again brought to you by Fan Tracks. Fan Tracks is a customizable fantasy platform, one of the best in the industry. You want a season long draft, you got to get in now. You got lots of time. Preseason, of course, just beginning on Sunday. You can go to fantracks.com. For a dynasty, a keeper, or a redraft, do it all. It's fantastic. Frank, how you doing? I'm good, Jay. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic, man. Hockey's camps officially are back. Open. Yeah. yeah. Camps are open. Lots of storylines. Hey, let's talk to the biggest one. Um, Jack Eichel, no surprise, fails his medical. Um, Boston then takes away the captaincy, which, or sorry, Buffalo takes away the captaincy, which which I understand. He's not going to be on your team. So why would you have a player who's injured, who's, who's never coming back to your organization? So you take away the C. If they're smart, I don't think they give anybody else the C in that massive rebuild that they're in right now. But this whole situation, like it... Buffalo says, hey, we, we want to trade him, you know, but we don't want him to have the surgery that he has. Uh, he wants a different surgery. But to me, they're, they're kind of hurting themselves. But how can you get real value for Jack Eichel when everybody knows he needs a surgery? And we don't know 100 percent, Frank, 
that a guy automatically has a great recovery, right? Like there's always that slight risk. So if I'm a team acquiring Jack Eichel, do I want to pay for the, the potential of Jack Eichel, the skill level of a guy who's finished top 10 in scoring a few times? Or do I want to see how he recovered first? Well, I mean, the health is without a doubt what's gotten in the way. I mean, when you look at this situation, I guess – Here's the real truth of the matter, and you mentioned that there's always a slight chance that the recovery doesn't work out. That That's true even with the surgery that Jack the Sabres want Jack Eichel to have. Yes. Like that risk exists either way. But I think what confounds me is what you just established. The relationship is irretrievably broken. He's not going to be a Buffalo Sabre again, most likely. They've stripped the captaincy. He fired his agent and brought on a new one in an attempt to get out. Why do you care what kind of surgery he has? It ain't your problem anymore. Like that's that's how I'm looking at it. And I'm saying hmm. he wants artificial disc replacement, which may be a little bit more risky in the eyes of doctors. They want a fusion surgery, which essentially fuses the disc together. What's the difference? And, and and I'm not a doctor. I'm not asking from a medical perspective. I'm just saying if we've established that all these other things are true, that he's not going to be back, that he's not going to play for you, he's not your captain, he's not your franchise centerpiece, what does it matter to you? Well, I'm going to guess. Is it simply about digging in yeah, or and saying we're not giving Jack Eichel what he wants after he's put us in this position? Maybe – but at the same time, you can't then sit here and ask for teams to trade for Jack Eichel and pay a price as if he is healthy when we know he's not. They had like this has been going on since March. It's September. That's six months. If they were smart, they would have had him given in at that point in late March, early April, and said, have whatever surgery you want, just be healthy by camp, and then that way they, they, they would have been able to trade him. Yeah, I, I maybe. Think. Yeah, I, I have to think their concern is if they have the surgery that Eichel wants and they don't believe it's successful, well, now he's gonna, he's, they're, they're going to lose the asset. He's never going to play again. And uh, now he's gone and, you know, you're just paying out this massive contract because he's not there. I, that, I'm just assuming I haven't talked to anybody in Buffalo about that, but that would be the only reason why. But what if doctors... he has the surgery that they want him to have and it's similarly not successful? No, no. But I think they're probably saying, Frank, we believe that our surgery has a higher chance of success. I, I, I'm I get it. Guessing. I, I hear. Here's what I think is is the real core of the issue is that other athletes have had the surgery that yeah, Jack Eichel wants. Hockey. Just not in hockey. So to say that it hasn't been proven successful or that it can't work, no, I don't think anyone's saying that. They're just saying we don't know for certain. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an ugly situation. And, and, and I just don't see a way around it other than no. getting the health part solved first. Like why, if you're another team, why would you pay full Jack Eichel asking price not knowing? Yeah, no, it's true. You're not helping yourself for sure. Um, that's one big story. The, the other one, of course, is uh, certain players uh, unvaccinated. They've got a vast majority of the league, like 98%, maybe even closer to 99. Yeah. Single will be digits now, I'm told, that are unvaccinated in the NHL. 
Single digits, yeah. Um, Tyler Bertuzzi's come out and said, hey, I'm not doing it in Detroit, so that means that he can't cross into Canada, so that's nine games. He will miss uh, Josh Archibald with the Edmonton Orders as another player. Now, he's in a much different situation because Edmonton crosses the border, and then every time you have to come back into Canada, you'd have to quarantine for two weeks. So I broke down the two options for Archibald. Best case scenario, Frank, is he only plays home games. He never leaves the country. Um, he could drive to Calgary to play those games. He could theoretically drive to uh, Vancouver because... Um, the, 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 they're likely going to be uh, no domestic flights in Canada, even for unvaccinated people. So he can't fly to Ottawa or Winnipeg or Montreal. But that's or, not in that's not in effect yet. No, but it's supposed to be in effect by October. That was the plan, right? That was the government had announced that. And we, at the time, we didn't know they had won, but now they're still in part. They're still in power. So I would assume they're going to follow through on what the, what they recommended back in late August. So if that comes to play, but even if it doesn't, best case scenario, he gets to play 50 games. Right. If it doesn't come into play, well, then he can play 45. But then you have to factor in, Frank, that so when the team goes on a 10 or 12 game road trip, he sits at home, doesn't play and you can practice all you want. You're not in game shape. You're not your your timing's off. Your rhythm's not really tenable. Right. And, and like no offense to Josh Archibald, but like Tyler Bertuzzi, you hate this. He's more valuable to his team. Well, they don't like it. They'll probably live with it more. And it's only nine games. Whereas, uh, you know, and so that's lots of guys miss nine games over the course of an 82 game season. Actually, the vast majority of the players miss nine games due to injury and whatever. So, you know, I'm curious to see how that situation goes and, and what and the other players and, and if eventually they change. And that's not to mention that Bertuzzi, well, he's every time they go on the road or anywhere, he can't really go anywhere. So, you, you do wonder how long it lasts. And, and I wonder, Frank, like a team like Edmonton or even Detroit, do they do the teammates look and say, hey, when you're unvaccinated, your chances of getting the virus are significantly higher. Doesn't mean if you're you're double vaxxed, you can't. But we just know the odds. And hey, there's lots of statistics. Everybody's a stats guy in the NHL. I wonder if it becomes an issue inside locker rooms throughout the season, especially if you have a player who's got a family member who's uh, uh, immunized, you know, compromised. And they're like, I don't want to be around someone who's unvaccinated. I'm really curious to see how that plays out because the, the cohesiveness of a locker room is, is a key to any team's success. It's funny that you said that because I actually just asked our guest who isn't really so much of a guest, Mike McKenna, in his new assignment at Daily Faceoff, I said, could you write a story on what the reaction would be like in a room? How do you think that conversation would be going having played – pro hockey for so long. Um, I want to be careful that we're not villainizing these guys. Yeah. And, and you mentioned these guys by name and obviously it's going to be a talking point uh, throughout social media, uh, throughout sports in general. I, I mean, it seems like in hockey, it's already gone to that next level because so many players are vaccinated that we are down to single digits. Whereas in football and baseball, where it's, 10, 15% of the league in those cases are still unvaccinated uh, that players, you know, for whatever reason, don't seem to be singled out as much. Um, I can tell you this. I think there is, by my rough estimation, a quarter of the league, if not a third, that were gritting their teeth getting jabbed. And I think there's... A big part of it, and from conversations I've had with players, is a big part of that group is all the players that had COVID already. I've I've had it. I've been through to the other side. I've got natural immunity. Why do I need the vax now? 
It's a hot topic, but let's let's move on. We'll get to our uh, big guest, a new teammate, actually, as we welcome in for the first time to the WoodJerseys.com studio. Of course, you can go to WoodJerseys.com. They're now up to 18 teams. They're going to have most of them by the start of the season. Frank's got the uh, lovely Toronto Maple Leafs. got Boston. Actually, I'm getting a brand new uh, Seattle one. I hear uh, Tyler might be getting a special DFO jersey. So you can check out, get your own team. It's a wood jersey. It looks very awesome in your office, in your fan cave. Check it out, woodjerseys.com. Our next guest played professional hockey for 13 seasons, playing with more than 24 different teams and wore nine different NHL sweaters. Mike McKenna, welcome to the DFO Rundown, and we're pleased to have him join Daily Faceoff on a full-time basis, yeah, at man. least for the next couple seasons, a place to wear a new jersey. Welcome on board. Thank you. It's nice. You know, it's, I mean, I wore so many different ones, and now I get to wear another virtual jersey, which is great. But uh, it's funny because, like, you, you introduced me like I'm a guest, man. It's it's not. We're all working together, which is the best part of this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just super excited, you know. Like, I, I feel like we're going to have a chance to do, one, exciting things, but, two, get to do some of the stuff that I haven't, people haven't seen a lot of from you lately, you know, writing and stuff like that. So, uh, man, I'm super excited. Thanks for the intro. Always yeah, appreciate it. We're, we're beyond excited to have you. And I, I just wanted to sort of dive into your background a little bit and sort of introduce you to listeners and, and fans that might not know you. Um, I actually first met you in Philly and I know that was an incredibly tough year for you. It was funny. I, I sort of just waltzed into the dressing room, not really thinking anything of it. And I, I, I came up to you and I said, hey, um, you know, I've really been following Mike. You know, we had never met before. And I said, I've been following your story. Like you went from Ottawa to Van, now Philly. I was like, it's been amazing to watch. I've been really enjoying it. And I think you were like putting stuff in your bag or getting your, your gear together. And you like flip turned around real quick. And you were like, <laughs> well, at least someone is. And like, I, I guess like it, you just, again, it's been, it'd been a tough stretch without your family. And I was like, Oh, Hey, this guy's got a little spunk. Like nice to meet you, Mike. So oh. um, yeah. Tell us about that year and sort of um, and, and your career and, and, and how it all ended up. I guess the way I responded to it's pretty par for the course for me with a lot of cynicism and snark. And <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it because I'm not, you know, it's like, it was like uh, happy Gilmore where they tell him that they need to kick happy off the tour shooter tells, I think Doug, who's the head of the tour, right? Like we got to kick him off. That's what I was feeling at that time. I'm not, but uh, that season was just crazy. You know, we, I started the year in Belleville and expected to be a depth goaltender for the Senators and really was there to help bring along their young talent. Uh, Gustafson was there. Hogberg was there. Both goaltenders that have had one-way contracts now with the Ottawa Senators. And I was with them for a month. And I get called up. Mike Condon, the poor guy, allowed a field goal in Arizona. And they call me up. They banish him. And he ends up being out. And, you know, kind of the deal going in, it was like, hey, okay, you're going to get the call-ups. And, uh, you know, probably not long-term stuff. And I'm like, great. So, Long and short of it is away. From, I was basically away from my family for about two months with the Ottawa Senators. And so playing games in the NHL, I'm doing the best I can, <laughs> which, you know, was probably a little mediocre. But I was I was trying to keep my head above water and uh, came Christmas time, goes past New Year's and bang. I got traded the same day to the Vancouver Canucks and changed locker rooms, like went down the hall with a trash bag of possessions to Vancouver and put on that jersey that night. And I looked like a kaleidoscope. I had on Ottawa gear with a Vancouver jersey. 
Um, and I dressed that night. I backed up Jacob Markstrom and then went down the road to Montreal, backed up the next night. Um, I backed up for three different teams in Montreal in the span of a month and played. So the security guard there knew me very well. Uh, it was very welcoming when I arrived, thankfully, with a different team. And then we fly to Toronto and I get claimed off waivers by Philly. And that's when we met. And, you know, for a second, I was a hot commodity in the NHL. I had two waiver claims on me. Toronto put one in as well, but they were better than Philadelphia at the time. So I ended up going to Philly and um, that's where we met. I hope that my demeanor changed quickly because uh, we had good talks. After yeah, that. no, it was, it was really, uh, I, I, cause it was actually a really important reminder for a reporter. Cause it's like, you know, a guy bouncing around and, and you mentioned in demand and that's sort of how I looked at it. It was like, Hey, look, this guy had been in the minors for a bit. Here he is. He's, he's getting all this attention in the NHL. This has got to be good for him. And and I hadn't thought of the family part of it, which was, I guess at the time now knowing that your family had moved to Belleville with you. Right. And that was the first time that you guys had ever crossed the border as a family to live there and set up shop. And you were never actually in Belleville. Pretty much, you know, I mean, we had to get the paperwork for the dog and everything to go across the border. So we were like tuned in my daughter's in kindergarten. And, you know, it's funny, you actually learn a lot about the different scholastic systems between Canada, and the US and the differences. And like, we had this awesome neighborhood in Belleville, I was we were going to live and we're living in Nick Cousins house, we were renting from Nick Cousins in this sick neighborhood in Belleville, great neighbors, uh, people that we're still friends with. But yeah, I was there for a month. And then, uh, you know, I, this was my, this was my 14th year pro at that time. And, you know, the previous two years I'd gone to the Calder cup final and lost twice in a row as a starting goaltender for teams game six, game seven, like even at 35, 36 years old, I knew I was playing my best hockey, but I also knew that at that stage of the game, that was probably going to be my last year pro. I had planned it. I'd been planning my exit for a while. I didn't want to be the guy hanging on forever that needed somebody to tell him you're injured. You can't play anymore. Oh, I don't think we can get you a contract. I wanted to call my shot, walk away healthy. I wanted my daughters to remember me as a hockey player. That was the biggest reason why I played my last year. It was my youngest daughter was turning three. And I hoped that she would remember me as a goalie. And, you know, I just wanted something stable. <laughs> and that's why, you know, the, when Otto was telling me, what to expect. I thought, okay, this will be stable. We'll be there. We're going to just enjoy this year. Uh, and then that'll be that. And, you know, I got a lot of time in the NHL my last year, which was amazing. It was the most I ever spent there. You know, I, I dressed, I don't know, 150 games played three dozen, but that last year I was up for four months of the season, four and a half months. And, uh, it was just an odd feeling, you know, to be kind of stuck in hockey purgatory in the hotel away from your family, not getting any clarity. If you're supposed to if, listen, if I was going to be on the team long-term, they would have told me to get a place to live. And that didn't happen. And so I'm just thinking like, when am I ever going to see my family again? Can they come to Ottawa? Do I need a new school for them? Do I need to go back to Belleville? And then I get traded to Vancouver. I was supposed to go to Utica and then I ended up in Philly and then I ended up in Lehigh Valley and it was basically until, you know, March 1st that we got our family back together. And um, it was just it's tough, man. Like, I know everybody thinks that you're making a pile of cash. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got an Acura that's named Pierre Eugene out of the thing. But like, I, I just, I felt like it was a time in my life where I just needed my family because that's why I was playing and they weren't there. 
And, yeah, and on the same stage, I'm trying to perform. I'm trying to do the yeah. best I can in the National Hockey League and not embarrass myself on Hockey Night in Canada. You know, so um, that was an interesting season, man. And then the dog almost died. He went ketoacidosis and diabetic coming from Belleville to Lehigh Valley. And we got oh. him back from the morgue. And dude, it just, it was sometime my, my wife and I need to sit down and podcast that whole season. That could be a future endeavor for us to do because what we endured that year was... Uh, was a lot. We'll just say that. And that was your your final year, Mike. I wonder if yeah. if that made the decision easier for you after that. And I was looking through your stats. You only ever played four seasons where you didn't go up and down or go to another team, right? So I, I don't know when you look at your life path and you and you look now the the, the uncertainty or like because when you're young and you're 20 and you're in the ECHL and you get recalled to the HL, it's obviously not a negative. You're pretty fired up about it. But <laughs> I'm sure when you get to year seven or eight and you know you're switching teams through the years and stuff, and sometimes you're going from one AHL team to the other mentally how much of a challenge is it? and can you talk about how you have to be a little bit of a chameleon personality to be able to just go into new rooms all the time and and get along with your teammates and your fellow goaltender you learn how to do it it's amazing that if you have experience going from locker room to locker room like i did it becomes a skill and i mean i think that's helped me in everyday life like i could kind of walk into any room and try to find common ground and be friendly with people from the start of it, because you just have to, like you have to assimilate if you're on a team it has to happen. You know, I mean, I joke around that Jacob Markstrom and I are besties now after two days backing them up, but you know what, after two days being teammates and playing against each other for a couple years before the day I retired, I got a message from Markstrom that day, you know, and it's not like we're text, but, but it just, it does show you the power of being in the locker room with somebody. And like, for me, it did, it became a skill. Like I just, it kind of became my reality that I knew I'm probably going to go up and down during the year. So I need to meet everybody I can in training camp, get to know people there that are on the big club in the NHL, get to know the America, get to know everybody throughout the organization because in all likelihood I'm going to be coming in contact with them. Um, like something I was proud of, of my career is that I don't know if proud's really the right word, but I didn't get traded until my 12th year pro, you know, and you look at all the transactions and teams and it's always the thought of, oh, this guy got kicked around all over the place. And no, I got traded once because Tampa wanted me for their playoff run in the call in the finals or in the American Hockey League. And then I got traded again to, you know, make room in uh, in Vancouver for Thatcher Demko to go up. So, you know, it it was one of those things where it was just it was my reality, but it was harder more so at the start and the end of the year when we were moving all the time. One-year contracts are tough, man, like where you just don't know where you're going to be. And I became so good at packing U-Haul trailer. Like in my basement, I got like 25 Rubbermaid bits, you know, like the big, huge ones like that. And I could play U-Haul Tetris like you wouldn't believe. And that's what the hard part was, though, because you pack up for a week and then you drive, you go to training camp, you get settled. That's about two weeks off your life. And at the end of the year, you pack up, you drive, you unpack, like, I found that I was miserable for a month out of every year, purely because of the moving factor. And I was done with that. And that's why that like going into that last year, it was like, okay, this is enough. Let's just enjoy this year. Do your best right out on a high note. Um, and, and, you know, again, give my kids an opportunity to hopefully remember me as a hockey player. Like my, my dad raced open wheel cars. So I remembered him racing like IndyCar F1 style stuff. I remembered him doing that, which was cool. I wanted that same feeling for my kids. And so it just, it confirmed to me that it was the right decision when that year went crazy, it was time to retire. 
Okay, whoa, whoa. Let, let, your dad was racing F1 and in Indy, like open wheel racing? Let me preface this. He was not an F1 or IndyCar. He oh, raced okay. what is essentially the American League equivalent of that in North America. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. so road racing in North America is governed by the SCCA, the Sports Car Club of America, which at the time in the early 80s was about as high level as you can get. He was the top amateur driver in the U.S. one year, uh, won five national championships. So, like, he was right on the cusp of running at Indianapolis if he had the funding for the 500. Yeah. Um, and at that point he had a burgeoning dental practice. He just had me and he scaled back, focused on myself instead of racing. Um, and part of it too, is racing is pretty dangerous back then. You're talking 1983, you know, two friends of his had just been killed driving. I mean, that's reality. Um, and so I kind of grew up in that dual background of racing and racing in the summer, hockey in the winter. So, okay. That's okay, interesting. I, now, sorry, Frank, I just want to quickly go back to you switching all those teams. You're in a unique position that, you know, maybe I think when you started in 0506, teams had goalie coaches. It's obviously now to a new level. But when you would switch a team, like if you're a defenseman or a forward, okay, here's a system. But goalies have like almost their own personal coach on every team now. Yep. So how hard was that when you're – because one goalie coach, I'm sure they have different philosophies. Did you did you have to speak up for, hey, this works for me and not always adapt to what the goalie coach thought you should do? Or did it help you getting so much different insight into how a goalie should play? Well, it depends who you're working with. If it was Francois Allaire, I knew I was doing it his way and there were no questions asked. Um, and I'm thankful for that because Francois Allaire taught me an awful lot when I was in Anaheim's organization for a year. Um, you know, but – Early, like you said, unless you were in the National Hockey League, you probably didn't have a goalie coach full time with you in the American League or the ECHL, which is insane because you're trying to develop talent <laughs> and you just put them on an island and say, go figure it out, guys. And this is supposed to be the most important position. You know, a team loses in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Who's the first guy blamed? I can guarantee you it's not the fourth line centerman. It's not the five, six pairing D. It's the goalie. It's their fault, no matter what, whether it is or isn't, you know, team scores two goals in four games. It's still the goalie's fault because they didn't have four shutouts. And so we didn't have that development. Like I spent two years in the devil's organization and had zero goal attending coaching. None. Nobody came to the American league ever. Wow. And that was 2010 to 2012 or 2009 to 2011. So that's your time frame of when the tide started to turn uh, I don't think it was until 2014-15 that I had a full-time American League goalie coach. Six years ago, seven years ago, which is astounding to think of. Uh, but now, thankfully, teams do. They have dedicated goalie coaches for the American League, their development. But in the NHL, you know, it was interesting to learn from a lot of different people. And you'd fall back into that chameleon role. And I didn't find it that... I needed to stick to what I knew as much as I needed to take whatever they were telling, teaching me. And I was learning from them and impart it into my game, not a complete overhaul, but to mold my game. Because I think for any position player, especially as a goaltender, you don't want to model yourself after one person. You know, if, if J.S. Jaguar is the guy in Anaheim, that's great, but I can't play like him. I'm not, I'm more flexible than him. I'm more dynamic, but I'm not as good of a skater. Right. And I'm not as good at, being in position all the time like he was. That's why he was so good. I lacked those skills. So I had to take the things that weren't as good and mold it to that goalie coach. And I got lucky, man. Like even the times I was called up and got to work with people or when those top goalie coaches came down to the American Hockey League, 
Mitch Korn, Francois Allaire, Ian Clark, Rick Wamsley, Dave Alexander. Uh, I mean, you want to go down the list of goalie coaches, Sean Burke, like I had all the big names, really. Like aside from Benoit Allaire in New York, you know, I never worked with him. I didn't work with Roly Melanson, but I got most of the big dogs. And I think that really helped me. You know, I learned from all of them different aspects and pieces that I could take into my game, uh, but still define myself as who I was. And that to me is the hallmark of a really good goalie coach is when they can get you to the point where you can coach yourself. So speaking of cars, I just, I need to ask, did I hear you say that you named your Acura Pierre Eugene? Was that as in Pierre Dorian and Eugene Melnick? Yeah. I mean, they paid me so handsomely to be there and and to sit in a hotel. I thought I'm going to name my car in tribute. So (laughs) I hope they hear, I hope they smile when they hear that, that, you know, a, a really super mediocre goalie like myself made a couple of bucks and could afford a, a nice used 2018 Acura TLX A-Spec. That is outstanding. I, it, just going back to that departure, so you you get traded from Ottawa to Van, is this correct? Yep. And you haul your garbage bag of stuff across the hallway because the Sens are playing the Canucks that yes. night. On national television, mind you. They got it. They filmed it. So that was the lead into the game. Here's, and, here's Mike and his and, trash bag. And no one thanked you for your time? No one the, said goodbye? The hardest part of that trade was, like I said, I hadn't seen my family. My family had just come in to stay in the hotel for a week, and Ottawa knew they were coming in. Well, this trade had been in the works, I guess, for a couple of days. They didn't tip me off or tell me to bring my family, which isn't surprising. That's normal. They're not going to tip you off to something in case it falls through. But yeah, I get traded and I got called into the, the assistant GM's office, uh, McTavish, who I'd met once before. And he told me, yeah, we, um, we traded you to Vancouver. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, <laughs> we're playing them tonight. He's, uh, he's like, yeah, we didn't know how you'd take it. So I was like, how, how I take it. I, I haven't seen my family for two months. This is not what we talked about this summer at all. Uh, I'm sorry, Mike, it's a business, it's a business. And, you know, you can only hear it's a business so many times before you just get fed up and say, you know, man, I've done this a long time. I've been in the game and played with so many thousands of players over my years that this is just crazy, man. So you kind of just have to eat it. Your tail goes between your legs. But yeah, I didn't, you know, Pierre Dorian never called me, never texted me. I never heard from him. The coaching staff, Guy Boucher, Everybody else on staff, nobody besides the goalie coach came out to even say, hey, thanks for the last, you know, couple of months, the dozen games you played for us. Good luck. Anything. And I'm like, why? What's going on here? Like, I've left a lot of teams before. I've been traded before. And it was the complete opposite of that. You know, like even teams you're on briefly, like the coaching staff will at least say, hey, good job. Maybe we'll see you in a bit, blah, blah, blah. That was just an odd period. Um, and it. Like when you're in those shoes, man, it hurts when it's like that. It's like, man, I've really just been thrown away, like legit just been thrown away, you know, and um, to add I in mean, the garbage bag. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like there. I know. And that's it, it's it just sucked, man. Like that the way it went down, especially, you know, I walk out and my kids think they're going to get a week with me. And, you know, there was a picture that floated on social of me with my kids and they're just crying their eyes out. And, it's, and I'm driving to the game to leave my car in Ottawa to eventually retrieve it. And they told me, you, you can don't leave. even know when you're going to retrieve it. Exactly. So they told me, okay, you can leave it here on the dock. It, it'll be fine. We'll take care of it. And 
I eventually was able to get it at all-star break. When I was with Philly, we played in Montreal. So I took the train from Montreal to Ottawa in the middle of a snowstorm, took an Uber that took 50 minutes, and this thing's drifting all over in the snow. And I show up, and my car is in a 10-foot drift with a flat tire and a dead battery. And I'm wearing Chuck Taylors and jeans in minus 20 weather. (laughs) Yeah, way to go, Sens. Thanks for taking care of my car. So I'm out there trying to literally dig my car out. I'm trying to avoid frostbite. It's a flat tire and a dead battery. And, you know, so I end up stuck at Canadian tire for about three hours uh, trying to fix that before eventually making my way to Belleville uh, to try to move everybody or at least see my family at that point. Um, Man, (laughs) it seems absurd talking about like there's so many things that happen that I can't even remember these things. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to take you back to the start of your career, though. Um, St. Louis, you're a proud St. Louis native and it wasn't known then as, as the NHL talent producing spot that it has been over the last number of years with all the draft picks. And it it was, I mean, I'm from Philly. We've had a ton of players from this area go recently and, and especially go to college hockey. But when I was, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you, but when I was playing, um, you know, in the AAA, you know, junior B, junior A circuit, that it was, even kids from this area weren't going to play a lot of division one hockey. What was pro hockey ever in your mind? Um, and, and sort of tell us the tale about your, how you ended up, you know, getting on this path. It wasn't in my mind at all that I could play pro. You know, I went to every blues game as a kid. My dad was the official scorer. My grandpa did it as well since the blues inception. So we had roots with hockey. My grandpa was, you know, one of 10 guys that used to drive two hours to get ice time to play hockey in St. Louis, like truly one of the founding fathers of hockey here, like outdoor rinks, chain link fence in St. Louis is the way it used to be. And like, for me as a kid, it was, I loved the game. I always wanted to play in the NHL. We all did, but how did you do it? Nobody done it from St. Louis. Nobody, you know, we'd had a couple draft picks, but nobody made the NHL. And I don't know, things just kind of kept rolling for me. You know, when I was 15 I played high school hockey and triple a one year before that I always played double a and you know when I was I think 10 or 11 I made the triple a team and we looked at the financials and my parents went no we're not doing that we're from St. Louis we're not going to spend 10 grand in 1990 you know whatever seven or six to play this we're not doing that and I was like all right okay I was disappointed and then got to be 15 and you know like buzz kind of builds around players in cities if they know you can play and that's what happened to me. I ended up playing the AAA team as a Bantam and, and also played high school hockey. And high school hockey, honestly, in St. Louis was like a really good step for me as a freshman, playing with seniors, thir- you know, 13 and 18-year-olds. It's a big step. Playing in front of fans for the first time, playing in front of your peers. It may have been 200 people, but it gives you that taste of playing in front of a crowd, especially as a goalie. And so 15 years old as a Bantam, I I, I kind of cleaned house at every tournament. I kept winning these awards and I'm thinking like, maybe there's something here. Like I'm, I might actually be good at this. I didn't realize before on a scale bigger than St. Louis that I was any good at hockey. Uh, and that turned into me making a junior A team at 16. You know, I tried out for the U S team. They took two goalies who never played pro much less anywhere, uh, which to this day, it burns. It, oh, it's just, it was a burning motivation to me that they didn't take me. Uh, Cause I knew I was good in that camp too, but, um, and that's one of my great regrets is never getting to wear the U S jersey, but 
I tried out, I didn't make it, but I made the team in Springfield, Illinois. So I was one of three goalies that were 16 playing junior A hockey. And that's really where it all began. You know, like this is real. This is high level hockey. Colleges started to call, um, took visits to places and ended up at St. Lawrence, which seemed like the right fit for me. One, because it felt right when I walked on campus. Gut feel is so important to me. Uh, But two, I knew I had a chance to play. Both of those combined. And I did. I got to play and um, and then, you know, next thing you know, my name's popping up on the draft list and I'm rated the number two goaltender in college hockey behind David Lenevu, who was at Cornell, who we played often. And of course, that was fuel for the fire because he saw about 15 shots a game at Cornell while I was getting shelled for 35. And he was the prospect, you know, he was the big dog. So, again, it was like that competitive fire um, and then end up being drafted by Nashville. And it's funny, though, because even after being drafted, I didn't look at this as a sure bet that I was going to play pro hockey, much less in the NHL. There's a lot of players that get drafted that don't play. I thought if anything, it gave me a chance to open a window and I went to their development camps. I didn't sign with them. It was, it was coming out of the lockout year in 2005, which if you guys remember, it was like a two month, like a two week window to sign free agents. And so I went to the coast, I went to Vegas and off I went. Uh, But yeah, man, I, I just, nobody from St. Louis had ever done it before. So I was the first goalie drafted from town. Um, and now we've had, I mean, almost three dozen players, it seems like, that have played in the National Hockey League. Five first rounders a couple of years ago. I'm seeing the Boston Bruins jersey in the background, Jason, Trent Fredericks in Boston. You've got uh, a, a whole host of players. Obviously, Pat Maroon's won three cups. He's our, he's our shining example at this point. And Cam Jansen was the first to literally and figuratively knock the door down for St. Louis hockey players in the national hockey league. Um, but you know what, if my grandpa could see what it's turned into, man, he'd be the proudest guy on earth. It's, it's really amazing. Cause like you said, Frank, like Philly, St. Louis, California, Florida, Dallas, all these areas in the U S that didn't produce hockey players. They all produce them now. There's no glass ceiling. Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot. I, I wanted you to take me back to your draft year, which was 2002, when uh, and, and you got, of course, uh, you know, you were drafted your, your second year of eligibility. Oh, hold on, first year. Back then, if you were in college, you had to be 19 to be eligible. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. Well, yep. there you that go. rule changed the following year or two after that. Okay. So yep. your first year of eligibility, you're 19. Such a weird r- rule. But yeah. um, how was how was the interview process for a goalie? And how many teams were, were talking to during that 2001-2002 season? One. The team that drafted me. That's the only team that talked to you? Yep. And it was Is that after... the only team that interviewed you? Yep. And it was after a game at St. Lawrence University. We played against Cornell. We lost 2-1, to one, I think, in overtime. David Lenevue was the other goalie. And there was a ton of scouts in the building. And we all knew they were going to be there. You have those feelings as a college player. Cornell was really good. You know, Matt Molson was there at the time, uh, some other pretty high end players and picks. And after the game, I knew I'd played well, but after the game, my coach says, Hey, Nashville's here. They'd like to talk to you. And it was Mitch Korn, their goalie coach, along with a couple other members of their scouting staff. And I walked down in the office and I went, Oh my God, this is Mitch Korn. Like, this is a huge deal because I'd read goalies world magazine from the time I was 12 years old and he'd written in goalies world and corns props and all these things. And I'm like, this is real. This guy is, and then I walk in and he's five, you know, six. And <laughs> I'm like, Oh my gosh, like you really are like half the size of these goalies I've seen you with. This is amazing. And 
that was the team I talked to. I interviewed with them afterwards and I went to the draft. It was in Toronto that year. And I thought like there was kind of the buzz, like you're looking like fourth to sixth round. There's usually a big run on goalies there. And my agent said, yeah, you're going to get taken. You should go. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking I talked to one team. Like there hasn't been a big process here. I was a little nervous about it. And, you know, we get to the sixth round and I remember that there was the run started to happen. I think Bobby Gepford went ahead of me and a couple other goalies. And I'm like, I think this, this, maybe this could happen. And sure enough, like Nashville, the one team I'd talked to bang sixth round, 172nd overall, I end up getting drafted. And I, you know, walked down to the stage. I walked past Wayne Gretzky and, you know, like I'm fanboying like crazy and call like trying to find a phone that I can call people. There's no cell phones for me in 2002. And uh, my parents were there. So it was cool, man. I remember like you go back to the hotel and Jeff Drew and Delorier, old goaltender and I were hanging out. He's trying to speak English. I'm trying to speak French. Jay Bodemeister's in the hotel room across the way. You know, Curtis McElhaney went like three or four spots behind me. Like it just, it's amazing to look back at that, at some of the people that, you stuff cut you cross paths with down the road and and some of the people frankly that I outlived in terms of career it, as a sixth round draft pick it was really surprising for myself to see so Nashville doesn't sign you they ended up you mentioned the lockout 0405 i guess they did okay there in the 04 draft well they they ended up signing a guy named Pekka Rene who you might have heard of that i think it worked out pretty well for them um Pekka's about, I think, $70 million richer than I am, which is great for him. I love Pekka Rene. Uh, <laughs> but the, the funny aspect to it was that, yeah, he was like, Pekka was kind of like a, a true diamond in the rough in Finland. You know, he was like a second goalie and, and they believed in him and he was big. And, um, you know, my last year at St. Lawrence was okay. Our team was awful. And it's easy to get lost in the shuffle like that as a goalie. And coming out of 0-4-5, teams were running with, four goalies under contract you know now you got five six goalies under contract like you have to have an echl affiliate pretty much for your goaltender that's the reason yeah. why teams have affiliates well that wasn't the case then like some teams had three guys and a, you know a fourth on an ahl two-way or something like teams were really thin and nashville was thin that was not a big money market it hadn't blown up to what it is now they were still in expansion mode really and there just wasn't any money there. I know it was pushed for, for me to, you know, even sign a low level deal or American league deal to put me in the ECHL to start. But, you know, I can remember Claude Noel sitting there at Claude Noel was one of the coaches in the organization, Claude Noel, Todd Richards, Barry Trotz. Uh, and I remember Claude Noel looks at me and he goes, is this what you want to do? You want to be a hockey player at the end of like my fourth development camp. And I was like, well, why the hell do you think I'm here? Like I, I do have my degree, man, but like, I want to be a hockey player. Yes. That's what I would like. And um, it's funny to tell that story to Claude now, you know, cause we, we cross paths often. Um, but they basically, they just, you know, they went with Pekka. I didn't sign. Uh, but I do think in my heart of hearts that if I would have signed with Nashville, even and got put in the coast, I do think my career path would have had a different trajectory than what it did. Cause it took me essentially three years to get out of the ECHL and in the American league full time. And I didn't have any juice behind me. I wasn't a prospect for anybody. And that's what always held me back in my eyes was that no one had a vested interest in me. It was just, I turned into the layover guy. I was the fill in for a year, two years, develop mentor. Um, and for me to stick in the NHL, I would have had to play 20, 25 games. Absolutely lights out like lights out. And 
one, I never played that well, but two, I never had that opportunity. And that was just my career path. So you're not going to be the lay and layover guy or the fill in guy here at, at daily Faceoff. I hope just not curious why you, you know, obviously your passion for hockey and, and wanting to make a career of it, you know, that burns through in any conversation, but why did you decide to get into media after? I had this, I had this thought process when I was a kid that I'm not going to make the NHL or play pro hockey. Maybe I could do it as a commentator somehow, which is insane to think now that I've done broadcasting and realize that those jobs are even harder to get than being a player in the national league to a certain extent. But I, I remember watching just and t- soaking in everything Darren Pang did. I loved what he did, you know, talking about guy, different curves and equipment and, and just kind of that joyful approach that he had to. And this is when he was with ESPN, I think early on in the two thousands. And, and I just, I thought this would be a lot of fun to do someday, but I didn't think I had a chance at it. And, you know, we didn't have communications at St. Lawrence. I was an econ major, um, but I did do a radio show. I had two hours of Monday night metal. You know, I'd, I'd sit there and I'd talk into a microphone, not knowing what I was doing. I'd sling discs, put them in, put them out before we had MP3s. So I did that while I could. And I just developed an interest in audiovisual. I started to do my own podcast. I started to, uh, when I was in Peoria, I was producing videos for the team with Windows Movie Maker. Like we'd go to a, a boys and girls club and I'd shoot with a little Sony bloggy download it, put it in Movie Maker, and the team would literally put it out on their social media because we had nobody in a PR department. It was me <laughs> and Brendan Burke, who's now the announcer for the Islanders and for uh, for Turner Sports. Was Basically, we were the PR department, and I was the goalie. So uh, I did that. I wrote for... It's absurd. It's completely, but it's minor leagues, man. Like We drove a bus the wrong way down the train tracks, the trolley tracks in Toronto. I'll never forget Bronco Brad, the bus driver going, we're going the wrong way. And we had to back it up <laughs> off the trolley tracks. Like we could tell minor league stories like that forever, but Bronco was the best, man. We put Bronco Brad on the side of the bus, like went to fast signs and got decals. I'm getting off target here, but um, I just, I don't know, man. I loved it. I thought it'd be fun to talk. I'm not afraid of a camera. I'm not afraid of a microphone. I actually enjoy them, right? If we had a function, I wanted a microphone because it started off because a lot of players just can't stand that. They don't want anything to do with it. And I was like, well, somebody's got to do it, you know? And it kind of started off where it was like a duty. And then I started to enjoy it. And then you start to develop your own personality in a public setting, which is really just an aggrandized version of myself. You know, me sitting here talking to you guys right now, I'm excited. I'm talking about hockey. I'm talking about my career, but I'm probably a little bit more energetic than I am in real life. You know, even though this is the real me, it's just what I kind of turn into when I get into these situations. And, you know, as soon as I finished playing, um, I started to really explore that, you know, even before my last year pro, I'd had an interview uh, for a radio color commentary role in the National Hockey League. I'd had an interview for a TV color commentary role in the National Hockey League before my last year pro. So people had taken notice to that. I'd written for In Goal Magazine and for NHL.com. Um and, you know, that was important to me, my writing, and it kind of kept my name in the conversation. And then as soon as my career did formally wrap up, you know, I was kind of pounding the pavement, seeing what might be out there. And I was ready to be dad for six months and then figure out my next step. And then Vegas came calling and gave me a chance to be their TV analyst. And I did that for the last two years. 
Mike, uh, we always like to end uh, our interviews with uh, Rapid Fire. Uh, Rapid Fire is delivered by DoorDash. Uh, restaurants and more delivered right to your door. You can use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. That gets first-time users 25% off and no delivery fees. Now, there's only one rule, Mike. You have to answer every question. That's okay. fine. I'm a huge DoorDash user, so oh, thank you to nice, them. Nice. Yeah. Any, any, any special place you like to go? Use DoorDash? What's your, what's your go-to? You know, we've got a couple of restaurants around here. We've got a great Thai restaurant, a great Chinese restaurant. Uh, a great, well, it, we always kind of go for our like Asian leaning stuff when it comes to DoorDash. Okay. So right. we're we, we're big food fans around here. I cook all the time. If you follow any of my socials, you'll you'll realize that very quickly. Okay, so what is Mike McKenna's go to number one? Like, if you're inviting Frank and I over for dinner, what is guaranteed going to blow our minds that you cook? <laughs> you know, I love to barbecue. And I think I'm decent at it. And it's good for a big group of people. My favorite thing to do when you've got people coming over is make tacos. And we're not talking just get out ground meat and put like we're talking like really churched up in-depth tacos out of a Rick Bayless cookbook, you know, and I'll put out like three different kinds. I'll put out the creamy chicken and greens tacos. I'll put out the chicken, the pork tinga tacos. I'll put out a vegetarian option on the side of vegetables that have been grilled. And, and like, you just make it fresh and fun and you give options and you let the people that come to your party control what they get to eat. Cause that way they're happy, Dude, right? You don't have to serve them something they may not like. You just sit it all out. You give them options and you make sure that the main protein, the main filling, make sure it's delicious. Let them go hog wild. I like it. I'm sold. I can't wait to come over for uh, Shay McKenna. That'll be great. All right. So what's the worst goaltending advice you got from a coach at any level? It came from John Wensink, who was my peewee Quebec coach at 13 years old. John Wensink, of course, famous for challenging the bench as a Boston Bruin. Yes. With a huge Afro. Yes. Um, John Wensink, the keeper of the huge Afro told me to cut my hair for the team because it was too long, ironically enough. And John told me to just stand up. It's an easy game. And he threatened to tie me to the posts and tell me to and get me to stand up at 13, which was 1997. And I love John Wensick. He is a great man. He is a great hockey coach. He taught us so much. He took us he took people from St. Louis to this Quebec tournament. And even if we were in the B flight, it gave us the sense of big time hockey. And the real deal, going to Canada. I love John, but John's goalie advice was utter shit. And I I just didn't listen to him. And I'm so happy because the goalie that did stand up for our team that he loved never went anywhere. And look where my career went because I had adapted the butterfly style by 97, which, I, which was saving pucks because kids at 13 aren't shooting the pucks in the air anyway. And so, yeah. I didn't listen to John, but I am so thankful that he was my coach and he's still a good friend to this day. All right. So conversely, what was the best tip or advice or the one that worked the most for you to allow you to become a better goalie? I think it happened late in my career. Um, you know, the, the best overall advice you can ever get is to just have fun. And that's hard to quantify because you have to do a lot of things to have the most fun out there. Um, but the best technical advice I got you know, a lot of it really started with Ian Clark when we worked together in Columbus's organization. And he really got me to dial in post integrations and more or less it was play between your, excuse me, play between your posts. Don't chase, don't end up in front of your post. Don't end up in the corner when you can avoid it. Use your post as bumpers. 
Uh, and so I took a lot of what Sergei Bobrovsky was doing that I'd never seen somebody do in person before. And this was 2013. And then I saw Curtis McElhaney do it, who I'd been friends with for years. And I went, wow, if Curtis has adapted this to his game, this late and, and kind of same career, I was like, I have to be able to do this. And um, I think that advice from Clarkie, just stay between your posts, pay attention to the details, pay attention to your alignment, all that paid dividends for me. Because again, my best hockey was from age 30 to 36 in my life. Are you, were you superstitious as a goalie? No, no. I think superstitions are a waste of time and mental energy. You must've had a goalie partner at some point along your pro career. The, the most superstitious goalie you played with. Oh, goalie is tough. I can always think of players right off the bat. Sure. Players. That's I mean, fine. we had, we had a guy named Jonathan Racine that would always lick his hands before he tied his skates. And then he'd mounted up this, he'd take bubble gum and mount it on a Gatorade bottle that he'd take like two sips out of. And the bubble would just, the gum would get higher and higher as the game went on. That was bizarre. Um, goalies. What? Yeah, dude. I mean like some weird stuff, but like goalies, you know, you'd always get the guy who's like, don't touch my stick before a game or don't talk to me or they just like leave the room. And to me, I always thought that, that was the strangest thing because you need to know what your teammates are talking about. You need to be open to them. You need to be able to, you know, go over what just happened on a penalty kill. You're part of the team. Too many goalies do like just fo- you need to focus on yourself as a goalie and focus on the puck. And no, you actually need to focus on everything, not just the puck. And you need to be a hockey player and a teammate. So Man, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head. I, I think we're going to have to revisit the strangest, most superstitious goaltender. Okay. Because um, that's an article. That's an article coming later in DFO. I, I know like we're it. an odd bunch of birds, man. And I know I could dig it up. But off the top of my head, you, you put me on the spot. <laughs> what is your cocktail of choice? Man, I love margaritas. I do, man. Like, and you notice a theme here. It's like comfort Mexican food is my thing. Just right? say, yeah. It is. Tacos, margaritas. Um if I'm if I'm actually stirring one up, that's my thing. I'll get the shaker out and you know get the rim and yeah, man, I, I like a nice casual Sunday. And then you can vary it up in the wintertime. You can do like a blood orange margarita. You can do watermelon margaritas in the summer. I like food. I like drinks. You can tell. Amongst your St. Louis uh, alumni who have gone on to the NHL, two specific ones you mentioned earlier. So if you have to put your money on and it's a Friday night, who can party the longest, Jansen or Maroon? I've seen it happen, and I'll tell you what, I've seen them together when it happens. I I actually think it's a it's a draw. Come on, no, you but, have, you, but, you but hold, hold, here's the difference. Patty Maroon can keep it going, and Cam's so scatterbrained that he'll find something and run off before the th- party's over, or you'll lose him for a half hour, and you he may circle back. You may see him again, but you're going to lose him for a while. Whereas okay. Patty will just hold the fort. He'll be in the same place. You know where he's going to be, but they're both champions. I would put my money on Pat Maroon if I had to go for a, a longevity contest. <laughs> you were a pretty good puck mover, Mike. You had five assists one year. You had four assists another year. How close were you to ever scoring a pro goal? Pro Pretty close. Um, I scored one in juniors. I scored the first in the history in the North American League. And it was the best moment of my life when it happened. I dreamed of it ever since I saw Hextall score when I was a kid. I was like, this is what I want to do. 
Like I wanted to be a goalie that scores goals. And now my daughters say that I've got five and eight year old daughters that want to be goalies that score goals. So of course I've got them catching with the right hand. Like I did. I was a four right goalie uh, in pro though. I maybe had two good chances. They just, with the trapezoid, it's really hard to get a good chance. It either has to be dumped straight in on you, or if you go out behind the net and you've got to move the thing so quickly to get up ice and then you got to launch it too. Um, I remember one night I had in Lehigh Valley, it was the best game I ever played. I played, I think I went like 45 for 46 and had two assists. And, you know, my longtime What a stat line. Dude, I'm telling you, like my longtime goalie coach, Chris Economo, who's out of, he's in the Hatfield, Colmar area of, of Philadelphia, way to the west side of town. He was there and he, he looked at me afterwards. He's like, he goes, dude, I feel like you gave me a gift. And like the second assist was on an empty net goal, goal by a teammate where I stopped it, but the four checker was coming straight at me. And it's like, you, you get nervous, man, because you don't want to flub that. You know, you, you're a total asshole if one of those goes in the net. And so I knew I had to launch this thing way high. And I did, but when it hit, it came down, you know, it's parabolic, right? It comes down and it kind of dug in a little bit at the far blue line. And I don't know if it would have gotten all the way purely because of that, but Greg McKeg picked it up, went down and potted it. And uh, is an exclamation point on the night, but that was as close and pro as I ever really got. And like, Junior was just perfect. Went around behind the net, turned out to the side, just like Brodeur, right down Broadway, right in the middle. It was it was absurd, man. It was like absolute highlight of my life to see that puck flying and going straight middle net and knowing it's going in, that nobody had done it before in that league. It's kind of like goalies scoring a goal is kind of like like a hole-in-one for us mortal golfers. Well, why do you think Pekka Lorene retired? You know, like, it's like, I scored a goal. That's enough. Like the only thing more he could have done was win a Stanley cup. And he did his damn best to do that. Like it was, it's, it's just so rare, man. Like you can play goalie your whole life and you'll never score. Yeah, like, I think Mike's I mean, your whole life. Never get a hole in one. Yeah. yeah. Marty Turco, Marty Turco never scored one in the NHL. He's a great, he's the best puck handler to ever play in the national hockey league in terms of like innovation and taking the game, the next step. Uh, the cleanest, the best puck handler, Marty Brodeur, was the gold standard. It was a lineage. I mean, Hextall, Brodeur, and then Turco and DiPietro took it to another step. Uh, but yeah, even Marty Turco, he did score you talk a about Turco because Mike Smith said uh, the reason he's a good puck handler is all because of Marty Turco when they played together. And the same for me. I watched Marty Turco play for the University of Michigan against Chad Albin in Joe Lewis arena when I was 13 years old. And these guys were just launching hail Marys back and forth. <laughs> and I re- I just went, I've got to be able to do this and yeah. it changed everything. Marty Turco has a grip named after him in goalies in the goalie world. Like when goalies put their hand reverse on their stick over the top of it, it's the Turco grip. He forever changed goaltending and changed puck handling. Mike, we love it, man. Uh, we're going to look forward to uh, all the contributions you have coming uh, in the future, in the very near future here at, uh, at DFO, at Daily Faceoff. We love it. Thanks for joining us on the rundown. Uh, I'm so happy. Anytime. Let's keep it going. Mike, I, I got to ask you, I know we went long. I just want you to give us one, like I was starting to roll a little bit when you were telling me, telling us about uh, the bus driver going the wrong way. Do you have one like quintessential minor league story that you oh, like to tell 100 percent. our bus caught on fire when i was playing for the portland pirates and kevin kevin denine was our coach at the time and his kid was on the bus <laughs> and his son was like in the bathroom and 
one of the right rear tires blew on the bus. Don't know why tires blow. And we didn't really think anything of it other than the fact that we were driving from Portland to Providence. And man, it was loud. You know, it sounded like a gunshot, like a bomb went off when the tire blew. But, but like that's happened. If you've been on buses long enough, you've had a tire go. Well, what we didn't expect is when we pulled over to the side of the road, the white smoke suddenly turned to black smoke because whatever happened, whatever sparks managed to get something to light up in the right rear. I don't know if it was like a hydraulic line or a brake line. I don't know. But the bus is on fire. And Deneen's kid comes tearing out of the bathroom. We've got a, t- a guy on our team named Mike Hoffman. Now, mind you, I played with two Mike Hoffmans in my career. That's how goofy mine was. This was the 6'5", 245-pound version Mike Hoffman who could chuck knuckles with Steve McIntyre and not think twice about it. He goes tearing over the seats like Costanza and Seinfeld yelling, the flames are coming, the bus. He's running off of this thing. And we get off the bus, Clyde the Glide, the bus driver, gets out 180s. He goes, we're on fire, boys, everybody off. And so we get off, we walk downstream, and a firefighter comes by us and he goes, Trust me, boys, you don't want to breathe this in. Go back the other way. So he wants us to walk past the, the burning bus, which had, literally has flames going over the side of it. The bus was totaled. Uh, nothing on the interior was hurt. The equipment was actually fine because the firewall protecting the cargo area under the bus protected it. Wow. But the equipment all smelled like mechanical fire, like car fire, like smoke. And so they delayed the game in Providence. We went to like a Panera on the side of the road to wait for a new bus to show up while they put our other one on a wrecker and got it out of there. And we were on the nightly news team bus catches fire. You know, we're wearing track suits, by the way, in the middle of winter, like the trash bags, Anaheim ducks, like just trash bag track suits. And we finally get to Providence like two hours late and we take warmups and my goalie partner, Gerald Coleman was supposed to play the game and he refused. So my equipment smells too bad. And we're wearing, we're wearing gitch like under gear, like laundry from Providence. Cause ours all smelled Wait, so he, bad. He didn't play. Cause he said his equipment stunk too bad. Yes. He wasn't the most superstitious guy. Come on. <laughs> I'm just relaying what happened here. Like, he couldn't, he wouldn't put, when he put his mask down, he wouldn't put, I took warmups except for when I was in that, I took warmups without a helmet on because the helmet was, it all just smelled man. So bad. But I remember Kevin Deneen pulling me over midway through warm-ups to the bench. And Dino's so funny. He grabs my jersey and he starts sniffing my like jersey. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, he goes, can you play? I'm like, yeah, we're here. Why? What's up? He goes, Colsey won't play. And I was like, okay, man, I'll go. Like, let's, let's do this. We're here. Let's just get it over with. Cause none of us wanted to come back and do it again. And so we go out there and like, we were actually doing okay through the first like period or two. And I'm thinking like, cool. We're going to survive this. We were losing like three to one, but at that point you're just thinking we're going to get out of here. Well, the wheels fell off in the third. Like, I mean, smoke inhalation took over and I think we lost seven, one or something. It just, so I wasn't scheduled to play. I played in all this like smoke ridden stuff. I got saddled with a loss and a huge mark against me. And I just went, whatever, man. And we got back and we had like our equipment guys washed our gear for like two straight days, all the gear, the bags, like you name it just to get that smell out. Like we owed them big time. We, we took care of our equipment guys after that because they bailed us, but yeah, dude, it was wild. I got pictures of it, man. Flames just right over the side of the bus, somewhere on the side of the road in Massachusetts. That's awesome, man. Minor league. Well, we look forward to all those type of stories. You're gonna have to, uh, you're gonna have to have some of that stuff in your pod and in your in your articles. I got plenty of them. That's just tip of the iceberg, boys.
Mike McKenna joining us on the uh, rundown brought to you by Fantrax. And, uh, man, he was uh, he's outstanding. Obviously, he's going to be a great addition, a fantastic storyteller. And I uh, just can't imagine a goal. I'm not playing. My gear stinks. That's that's a new level. I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah, that's that's unreal. I don't even know what I would say, especially if I wasn't scheduled to start. Like, no, man, this is on you. Like, you think your gear stinks? What do you think mine smells like? Like, come on, get out of here. Uh, but I'm really excited to have Mike on the team. Uh, as you can tell, great personality. Uh, I've gotten to know him over the years, great human being. And I think he has so much to offer. You heard some of the stories, the opinion, the insight. Uh, he's not shy to share it. And I think you know, coming with us at Daily Faceoff, it's an opportunity for him to showcase some of that that, you know, he maybe didn't get to show in his first real run as a media guy, uh, as a TV analyst with the Vegas Golden Knights. So we, uh, as Mike ended it perfectly, tip of the iceberg. So we're excited. Well, I think the other thing that was, was cool is people have to remember it. It's not that long when you think about it in the grand scheme of things that NHL teams have really focused on the goaltending position. Like it's, you know, you have a minor league system and New Jersey had, you know, for the longest time, the greatest goalie in the national hockey league, but they didn't care about their farm. Now, maybe they didn't care because they're like, well, we don't need the goalie of the future. They didn't need right? to. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's funny because he was talking like 2009, 2011, he's in Lowell and he didn't even have a goalie coach. So it wasn't until 2014 in the minors that you, now some teams would have had the odd one, but not a lot. And, and that kind of, a lot of teams were taking their NHL guy and sending him to the AHL for two weeks at a time to work yeah. with the guys. Yeah. But, and even then, Frank, like that was, you know, that's only in the last few years too. Like that in 2010, 11, you might've saw, I, I talked to goalie said, yeah, I might've saw the goalie coach once a, a year. Now for we've like got whole goaltending departments. Yeah. Florida and, Panthers have four or five guys that are just leading the goaltending department led by Roberto Luongo. And I think it's something that where they have to catch up is they I'm surprised more teams don't have skills coaches with certain guys because skills coach for a defenseman is different than a skills coach for enough for a forward. What you want to focus on. And, and, and you also need a skills coach, one who shoots left and one who shoots right, because it's even for pro players, it's a little bit easier to demonstrate than when they see. It. I remember talking to Adam Oates about that. He said that was the biggest. And, and Adam Oates is considered one of the best skills coaches around. He's independent. But even he, when he runs his, he gets a guy who shoots the other way just because, you know, trying to show a righty when you're a lefty, it's not as natural. So I think the NHL, it's funny that, you know, the biggest exciting part of their game, which is still scoring goals, and they're not, they don't focus on it as much as they should. That's a whole topic for another day. But I'm mm -hmm. still, I think, uh, you know, and, and based on the fact that, Frank, uh, the goalie position is that important and they didn't put that much stock into their development process up until really the last decade, you know, how long until they're really going to put in that much focus for their skill position? It'll be a while, I think. So. Yeah, probably. That wraps up uh, another edition of The Rundown brought to you by Fantrax. Go to Fantrax.com if you love fantasy. This is a season play, so you want to get in right now. Sign up for your team. You want a dynasty league. You want a keeper league. You just want to have a, a redraft league. You can do it all at Fantrax. That's T-R-A-X.com. Register there. Use the promo code. Uh, go to, to Fantrax.com, D-F-O, Rundown, and you can qualify to win the autographed Nathan McKinnon jersey. Uh, Frank, we've got a very special special guest uh, coming up on uh, Monday that we look forward to. And I think people are really going to want to listen to this. There's going to be some great stories from uh, from him. Uh, I don't even want to say who it is because we don't Another want Another guy joining the DFO team. Yeah, this is but, it. Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road this week. Oh, We've got a lot of exciting launches next week. Yeah, no, this uh, this contributor, I think, is, is in an area that a lot of fans have a vested interest in. So that's my tease. I think you'll enjoy it.
Talk to you on Monday. Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.